I wish you would hold your place in uh, Hosea chapter 10 and in way of introduction might turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Hold your place in Hosea 10 and let's look at Deuteronomy 7. You might say, why look at Deuteronomy? We're going to preach from Hosea. Because as we have said over and over again, the plagues and the judgments which are coming on the people of Israel were promised by God if they were disobedient to His covenant. They're simply fulfilling the promise God made to them. And in Deuteronomy 7, we know that God is repeating the law through Moses to His people just before they cross over the Jordan to take possession of the land He had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And through Jacob to the twelve sons of Jacob. And through those sons, the tribes, which had become a nation while they were sojourning in Egypt. God has delivered them. God has taken them to the edge of the promised land once and they turned back. And they wandered 40 years in the desert. And that whole generation ceased to exist. It died in the desert of Sinai. Now they've come back to the river. Moses is preparing to leave them. He knows he will not go over and take possession of the land because of his sin. And so Deuteronomy is a repeating of the law. And in Deuteronomy 7, let's, let's read together. I know it's not common practice in our day to read a lot, uh, and uh, sure not in public, but excuse my lack of etiquette, and let's read together because I think God's Word will introduce Hosea 10 better than I can. Deuteronomy 7, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than yourselves. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you, and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down the ashram and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession. Listen to the love God has for His people. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, God has chosen you. It was not because you were more in number than any other that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the land of the Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate Him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates Him. He will repay Him to His face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. The place of the law in the people of Israel was not to establish a relationship with God, but because God had a relationship with His people. He gave them a covenant and a law. The law detailing the way they might have personal relationship with Him. It was not to establish a relationship that God gave law. God gave law to detail the actions and attitudes of people who are in relationship with Him already. 
And He promised, if you turn your back on Me, and if you take after the gods of the other nations, I will repay you to your face. I will ha- if you hate Me, I will destroy you in your generation. We could continue. It's a, it's a long passage, and it's a beautiful passage, and it is a very convicting passage about God's love, His people's unfaithfulness, faithfulness and the repayment of their unfaithfulness. You see, God was in covenant with the nation of Israel. God struck this covenant, beginning with Abraham, by calling him out of his native land, away from his father's house, and telling him to go to a place in which he would be told when he arrived. He journeyed to what we now understand to be the land of Canaan. He left Mesopotamia. He left Ur of the Chaldees. And he returned to the original place God struck a covenant. See, the place known as Canaan, I believe, best fits the description of Eden. God had come and made covenant with Adam, and Adam had broken the covenant. Because Adam broke the covenant, all men broke the covenant. But God remained faithful. And in his servant Abraham, he brought them back to the dwelling place he had had with them from the beginning. And he said, this shall be your possession. You shall dwell in this land and you are my people and I am your God. And I will multiply you, Abraham. And your descendants will be like the stars of the sky and the sands upon the sea. And it will be innumerable the way I will bless you. And you will not only be blessed, but you will be a blessing to all nations because your descendant shall be a blessing to all the nations. God made a covenant with Abraham established in Genesis 15, ratified by the blood of animals. God made the covenant with Abraham and he kept that covenant. He multiplied Abraham's seed through Isaac, his chosen son, and Jacob, the favored son of Isaac, and the twelve sons of Jacob. God brought them back out of Egypt. And where did He take them? To the Jordan. To take possession of the land I promised your father Abraham. The original land which Adam had dwelled in, in Eden. The place of God's dwelling on the earth with his people. And standing there looking at this beautiful place, Moses says, remember that God has said you shall have no other gods before him. If you take other gods, God will destroy you. If you show mercy to those who God has judged and condemned because they hate him, God will then Condemn and judge you. Why do I tell you this? Because I'm afraid that often we lose connection with the first half of the Bible. More than half. The Old Testament. Because we believe what God did was started with Adam. And Adam messed it up. And he started over with Noah. And Noah messed it up. And he started over with Abraham. And Abraham messed it up. And then he started over with Moses. And Moses messed it up. And Moses messed it up. And then they went into the period of the judges and the history, and we kind of skip over judges and first, second kings, first, second chronicles, so we can get to David's dynasty, which he established, and God promised to David a throne that would never depart, and yet Israel was destroyed. And we say, well, God had to start over again, so he sent his son Jesus. No. God made a promise to mankind in the person of Adam, and Adam broke his agreement, his covenant. And God, before time began, had planned to send His Son, the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And everything we see in the Old Testament is a lesson and a teaching to us about God's faithfulness and our lack of love and faithfulness. Everything in the Old Testament is directly applicable to you and to me. Everything. Hosea 10 is directly applicable to us. What do we do to make application of this message which he gave to Israel in Hosea 10. We first understand what it meant to those people. Aaron and I were having a discussion about this this week. How do you take a passage written to the people of Israel and apply it into your life? You first understand how God wanted them to apply it in their life, right? 
But you don't stop there. This is not a history book, the Old Testament. It's a book for you and your children that they may obey the Lord. Right? And so we move from his application to Israel to the application he has in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And through Christ and the gospel and the cross, we make application into our life. God has not changed the way he deals with his people. God is faithful. God is steadfast. God never changes. God is unified. He is not divided. That should be, bring comfort to you. How do you know that your God won't change the agreement? Because he made that agreement with himself in the Trinity first. He made that covenant between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Having made the covenant with himself, he made the covenant with his people. And now that covenant with his people is based on the covenant, the eternal covenant he has with himself. He cannot break his covenant with you, his people, because he cannot break his covenant with himself. God is sure. God is one. God is to be worshipped and adored as a God who has been faithful to his promise. And so we see the warning all the way back at the River Jordan from God through the person of Moses to the people of Israel. Do not worship other gods. If you do, I will judge you. And we've been reading and studying in Hosea, beginning in chapter 6 really, all the way till now, the judgments God acted out on His people because they did exactly what He told them not to do. They worshiped other gods. We might say that this message is best titled, The House Divided Against Itself Will Fall. And for you history buffs, you say, How? Could that be the title for God's message? That was the title of Abraham Lincoln's speech, June the 16th, 1858, when he was selected to run for the United States Senate against Stephen A. Douglas. Well, you're right. He did select that as his title, A House Divided Will Fall. He took it from Mark chapter 3, verse 25. When they said that Jesus, the Pharisee, said he was casting out demons by the demons. And Satan, which was in him, was casting these demons out. And Jesus said, a kingdom divided against itself will fall. And Abraham Lincoln made a speech which has gone down in history. By the way, it was not a political speech. It was an ideological speech, and it caused him to lose the election. <laughs> Stephen Douglas beat him because he was on an issue that was a hot button at that time. And yet, in that moment, he was voicing a truth. We could debate his application of that truth. But he was voicing a truth which is biblical. And that is, you cannot be duplicitous. You cannot be double-tongued. You cannot say you are the land of freedom and liberty and then treat people as if they are chattel possessions. You can't do it. It will fall. And he became somewhat of a prophet because the problem festered in the states and there was a great civil war. And we might say the house did fall, didn't it? Because what emerged from the United States Civil War was not what went into the Civil War. The dream of the forefathers died in the Civil War. A house divided will fall. Jesus said it. Well, we could say Abraham Lincoln said it, and Jesus said it, and God said it. Jesus was drawing, when he said a house divided will fall, on a truth that stands time immemorial. You cannot say one thing and do another and expect to stand. You will fall. Israel was divided. Her heart was divided. I take that title of my message, not from Abraham Lincoln and not even from Jesus, but from the first verse in our chapter, chapter 10. A house divided will fall. Where did I get it? 
Israel is a luxuriant vine. That word luxuriant, it means it's, it spreads. She has spread. She has grown. She has multiplied. Hosea chapter 10 verse 1 describes Israel as a, the nation she has become. Not the tribes that entered into slavery or exited slavery. But she's a full-fledged empire at this point. She's a nation. That yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their hearts, their heart is false. That word false in the English, translated into English, means duplicitous. It means divided. It means double-tongued. The Hebrew word means double-tongued. Their heart is double-toned. What? It's hypocritical. Israel was saying with her mouth and professing with her images and her worship that she loved God. And yet, the reality was she was worshiping idols, not God. And what God had promised in Deuteronomy came true. You cannot serve God and idols. If you turn your heart from me to these idols, I will destroy you. Hosea 10 is a very harsh chapter. We're going to get into some things that might make your stomach cringe this morning because sin is ugly. Sin is atrocious. And its effects are more than devastating. Sin, a duplicity in you, a double-tongued nature in you will destroy you. You cannot stand. You will fall. Israel found herself divided because she was attempting to serve God and idols. So let's look here. We've seen the language here in the first verse. And we might go back to that opening clause now and see that Israel is being compared to a vine. And this is not the only place in the Bible where we find this uh, comparison of Israel to a vine. Listen to these words in Isaiah chapter 5. Verse 1, let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. These are the words of God through the prophet Isaiah about Israel. My people are vineyard, God says. On a very fertile hill, he dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. Talking about when he brought them out of Egypt. He put them in the choicest of lands. And may I tell you that even today, even today, if you travel to the place that they came from out of Egypt and see the absolute stark contrast between being on one side of the Jordan River and then crossing it into the Promised Land, you will see that what God is saying is absolutely true. There is no place more fertile, more beautiful, more in direct contrast than standing on one side of the Jordan, driving across it to the other side. I'm talking about a desert that couldn't grow any produce. And when you cross the river, you enter into a fertile plain. The place is, is beautiful. We have people who've made that travel in this church. You know, I've, I remember the first time the whites mentioned that they spent time in Egypt and then crossed that river. And they said, man, it was like, it really was like going into the promised land. The flowers were everywhere. These grass was, 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 was just lush. And God says in Isaiah, I took you and I planted you in the choicest place. In the most fertile of all places on the earth. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. And hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes. Look at this. But it yielded wild, bitter grapes, wild grapes. God planted them in the land. He called them a vineyard. And he was expecting a good return on his labor. And what he got was unrighteousness. 
the gratitude his people showed him was disobedience, was idolatry. That's, that's not the only place. There's other places, but I, I, for time's sake, we'll only go to one other. Psalm 80, God says in verse 7, Restore us, O God, or the, the psalmist says, Restore us, O God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. Verse 8, you brought us, you brought us a vine out of Egypt and you drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. He's describing, you took us, this small group, band of people, out of Egypt and we multiplied. And we were fertile and we grew. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish He's describing the judgments which came on God's people. The vine which God planted and expected a righteous harvest. And what he received was idolatry and disobedience and unrighteousness. And so he sent the nations there to destroy Israel. Restore us, he ends, O Lord, God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. The Old Testament is filled with places calling Israel a vine or a vineyard, every place that it's mentioned, it's in a negative connotation. God labored to make Israel the greatest nation in all the world. Hosea 10 says they were a luxuriant vine. And yet the return was not sweet grapes of righteousness the return he received was disobedience, idolatry, and shame. And what did he promise them from the very beginning? When you go into this land, you conquer it, you weed out all the idolaters, and you live there unto me because I've chosen you as a people. Do not worship idols. If you do, I will destroy you. That was his promise. And Hosea 10 is a fulfillment. Of his promise. That if you turn away. I will destroy you. So we see that Israel. Is destroyed. Because she is divided. She is duplicitous. She is trying to worship God and idols. But how are. They double tongued. But we. In answering that question, we really need to answer, how are we guilty of being double-toned? How are we guilty? We are guilty. I think if we were honest, you and I, we would say we're just like Israel in many ways. We put up the front of righteousness and yet in our hearts, we worship everything but God. So the warning God gives to Israel is a warning to you and me. If you claim to be my people and you try to live worshiping others, you will die. I will not receive you. Let's look at three, three sections in this chapter together. The first section... The first point we might say is we claim, how are we double-tongued? How was Israel double-tongued? How were they false in their heart? Well, we claim to love and worship God while worshiping these idols. That's the first thing we see in this passage. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their pillars and destroy their, uh, their altars. For now they will say, listen to them, we have no king. For we do not fear the Lord. And a king, what could he do for us? 
they're referencing their king in the physical sense. But there's a deeper meaning here. And it comes to light when we notice the way he phrases this. We have no king for what we do not fear the Lord. What they're actually saying is, God is not the head of this nation. What would he do for us anyway? You see how self-righteous and idolatrous their hearts have become. Now it's God's fault they face Assyria. Now it's God's fault they're being led off into slavery again. Now it's God's fault they're about to be conquered. We don't have a king. Well, that's a physical reference. Their king was not much of a king. He had assassinated the previous king, and now he had entered a covenant with Assyria to try to protect him, and the people were mocking him. He's a puppet for the Assyrians. He's no king. But there's a deeper meaning, because the kings of Israel represented God Himself. What would God do for us anyway? They were going to these altars and these high places with their fine clothes and their purified outward bodies. And they were saying the words which God had said to say in repentance and in their hearts. They were denying the existence of God and denying God's rulership over them and denying His place in their their nation and saying, we have no need for Him. What will He do for us anyway? Many of you are guilty of this exact sin. You come to a place like this. You dress nice. You speak nice. You smile a lot. And in your heart you say, this is worthless. What good has it done me? My mother still gets sick and dies. My kids are still rebellious. I haven't made any more money. What would God do for me anyway? God's judgment falls on those who live hypocritical lives. You cannot put on the false front of righteousness. Sing the song, smile the smile, dress the part, and fool God. God sees the heart where in your heart you may be saying, this is worthless. I come here for my wife. I come here for my family. I don't want my friends and neighbors to think I'm a bad guy, so I go there and, oh, I love Jesus. And all the while, internally, you say, what has he done for me lately? What good has really come out of this religious thing? That is the sign. That is the the heart of idolatry. We have committed this same sin. We are duplicitous. We are false. We are hypocritical. And if we don't repent, It is a sign, it is a sign that God's people will be judged. Maybe this is the place we should make a distinction. I was explaining it to Dave today, uh, this morning. Poor Dave's trying to get things laid out for the service. I'm running over, you know, I'm ready to go. I got two hours to go before I got like a cocaine addict just waiting for the next fix you know I'm ready to go I'm filled because I'm convicted and convinced that we need a better understanding of God and his people the covenant people of God have always listen to this closely the covenant people of God has all have always been divided into believers and unbelievers Old and New Testament. There were those, the remnant of Israel, who not only were in covenant with God, but were redeemed because they believed in the promised Messiah. And there were Israelites who were covenant people of God who did not believe. Yet they reaped temporal blessings, momentary blessings. Because they lived in the nation of Israel. And God loved them out of all the nations on the earth. And then there are people who are not in covenant with God. They're pagan. They're lost. They're unbelievers. The church is identical. 
The church is filled with both believers and unbelievers. The fact that you come here and the fact that you receive blessing in the moment for being here because you hear God's Word and you practice some of God's Word and you see the benefits of godly living does not mean you are a believer. It may very well mean you're facing stiffer and stronger judgment in the end. Israel was judged because she was divided. And that's always been the case in Israel. And it is the case in the church. You say, how do you know? First John. They went out from us because they were not of us. If they had been of us, they wouldn't have gone out. But they went out to show that they were not of us. That language tells me John expected and knew that there was a church filled with both believers and unbelievers. And God would expose them of their unbelief. And so the fact that you sit here and you hear the gospel message and you say, Amen, brother, does not mean you are his child. It may very well mean you are reaping the temporal blessings of being around his children. Because these are God's chosen people, Israel. And yet God's going to destroy them. When His judgment fell on Israel, it fell on all of Israel. And the only ones eternally saved were those in the promise. Those who believed God and it was counted to them as righteousness. The rest died and stoked the fires of hell. Most of physical Israel Stoke the fires of hell, not face redemption and eternal blessing. So, listen, when you see this language about the covenant and you see, well, what is God doing? He's destroying these covenant people. He can't break His promise, can He? Paul said He didn't break His promise. He kept His promise. All of Israel will be saved. That is Israel. All of them will be. God's going to keep His word. He did in the days of Hosea and He will today. I think you... You've got to walk away from this message with this. Not only can we be divided in ourselves, but our church might be divided also. And God may purify it in the days to come. By the process He showed in 1 John, some may go out because they're not of us. And so we see that we... We may very well claim to love and worship God while worshiping idols. Secondly, we claim to hold to the truth while living in falsehood. Look at verse 4. They utter mere words with empty oaths they make covenants. So the characteristic of the people of Hosea's day is that they are liars. They make agreements which they turn around and break. And Hosea says that's the characteristic of people who are duplicitous, who are double-tongued, who are divided. The focus of God in the Bible on speaking righteous words is because Jesus' principle is true. That which defiles a man is internal. And it comes through his lips. What is in the heart will come through the lips. The fact that these people are characterized as liars and covenant breakers shows that they are not God's redeemed people. They're in Israel, but they are not the true remnant of Israel. They're making business deals and business practices that benefit them based on falsehood. So judgment springs up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. <laughs> they come, the people of Samaria tremble at this idol, the calf. Its people mourn for it. So do its idolatrous priests. So God's bringing the judgment on them. And the first thing He does is destroy their idol. And now they're mourning for the idol. They're going to the holy place, supposedly worshiping God, and all the while mourning the death of an idol. They're double-toned. They're hypocritical. They are not God's redeemed people, though they are in Israel. If people mourn for it, and so do its idolatrous priest, those who rejoiced over it and over its glory, for it has departed from them. 
It's gone into exile. They worshipped this idol and they believed it brought them the fruit of a good harvest and God took the idol to Samaria, up from Samaria to Assyria before them. It had gone already into exile and now they're going to follow it. They're headed to exile. The thing itself shall be carried to Assyria as tribute to the great king. The decision to seek protection from Assyria now is leading the people of God into destruction. Their idol is gone to Assyria. Now they are going to Assyria. Ephraim shall be put to shame and Israel shall be ashamed of his counsel. You can't be both a worshiper of the living God and serving everything else in your life as God. It will lead to destruction. It will give you bad counsel. In the end, you will despise the thing you worship. That's what he's saying. We can be guilty of this also. We are people of the truth, and yet we live lives which are false. We are people of the supposedly characterized by the truth, and yet we find ourselves speaking lies, breaking our promises. Samaria's king shall perish like a twig on the face of the water. A house that's divided, a person who's divided, a people who are divided will fall. You cannot serve God and idols. Third, we claim to be righteous while practicing evil. We claim our righteousness, but we practice evil. The high places, you might think we've gotten to the bad part. I mean, we're, we're not even in the depths of it yet. God's judgment or his announcement of judgment gets increasingly worse. The high places of Avon, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars. They multiplied their altars and now God is destroying their altars. They received temporal blessings being the people of God and now God is destroying the blessing. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been there? You knew you were duplicitous. You knew you were hypocritical. You knew that you were saying you were righteous and yet you were evil. And the thing which you were seeking, you attained and you thought, see, God's blessing me. And then only to find it fall. Only to find it cut off. This is Israel. They thought they had achieved great place in the world. They had their nation. They had their kings. They had... Their dynasty set up and, oh, God must be blessing us. We must be right. We, our numbers have multiplied. God's blessing us. And then in one failed swoop, all that they worshipped fell. He destroyed them. He exposed their wickedness and their idolatry. From the days of Gibeah, You have sinned, O Israel. There they have continued. Shall not the war against the unjust overtake them in Gibeah? When I please, I will discipline them, and nations shall be gathered against them when they are bound up for their double iniquity, their double-tongedness, their sin upon sin. This reference to Gibeah is somewhat troubling. It had to have struck fear in the hearts of the people of Hosea's day. The Word of God is so beautiful. God draws these pictures from the past to show them what's coming. You want to serve idols and claim you worship me? You'll die like the people. And Gibeah died. What is God talking about? Well, Judges 19 through 21 
You might jot that down. It's a long reference, and we're not going to read it for time's sake. Is the account of Gibeah. Gibeah was a city in the tribe of Benjamin. In the days of the judges, when there was no king in Israel, the first line of Judges 19 says, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, Israel. And then the story goes on. And I'm going to condense the story for time, but it's worth your read. Because he says, from the days of Gibeah, you have remained in your practices that were at Gibeah. That's what he just said in Hosea chapter 10. You still live like you did in the days of Gibeah. What does God mean? This Levite, this priest, had a concubine who returned to her father's house in Jerusalem. What became known as Jerusalem. And the Levite traveled to this house to get his concubine, to bring her home. And he wined and dined her, we might say, and convinced her to come home with him. But her father made him tarry seven days. And on the seventh day, he rose to leave. Late in the day, and the sun began to set. Remember the list of nations from Deuteronomy 7? One of them were called the Jebusites, and they were told, destroy the Jebusites. They're still in the land. They're still there. Because he gets to a point in his travel where the sun is setting and it's getting dark and he's in this remote country. And so for his protection, he can go to the city of the Jebusites and he's advised to do that. But he says, no, I won't dwell with the foreigners. I'm going to go to my people in Gibeah. So he went to Gibeah, the city of Benjamites. You would think you would find protection there and instead... A man comes in from the fields and gives him an offer to stay in his home. And they enter the home. And then when the sun set and it became dark, the young men of the community gathered outside the house and cried for the Levite to be put out in the street so they might perform homosexual acts on him. Sound familiar? Sounds a lot like the people that Abraham encountered with Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah, doesn't it? God said, do not give these people safe haven among you, because if you do, you'll begin to worship like they do. In Deuteronomy 7, God warned them, kill everybody in the land, all seven nations, destroy them. And they didn't. The Jebusites are still there. And now look how the people of God are acting, just like the world around them. And so the man of the house wouldn't put the Levite out because he was a priest and he was afraid what God might do. And so they took this poor woman and threw her into the streets and these men had their way with her all night until she drug herself back to the doorstep and died. When the Levite rose the next morning, went outside his door, there his concubine was dead on the doorsteps. He loaded her up on his donkey and he took her back to his, to his city. And he chopped her body up in 12 pieces and he sent her to every tribe of the people of Israel, warning them of what had happened and of the evil that they had permitted and they had acted out. Like the people of idolatry, they had become people of idolatry and sinful practices. They were duplicitous. They had heard God's word and said, we will do everything you command us. That's what they said to Joshua, and they didn't do it. And now they're fulfilling the promise of God. If you keep these people, you will be like them, and you will suffer like them. The people of Israel were enraged against the Benjamites, and they rose up and they slaughtered almost every man in the tribe of Benjamin. So much so that they had to give daughters from their own tribes to repopulate Benjamin's tribe. And you would say, they learned their lesson. That was the judgment of God. And yet all these years later, in Hosea chapter 10, God says, from the days of Gibeah, you have sinned, O Israel. There they have continued. 
They were idolatrous like the people in the days of the judges. Matter of fact, that story goes until Judges 21. The last words of Judges are, in verse 25, there was no king in the land of Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. Do you want to know what happens when a people supposed to be concentrated and consecrated unto God live in idolatry? You begin to do everything that's right in your own eyes, not in the eyes of God. You claim, oh, we're people of the book, we're people of the truth, but you don't look in that book to know how to live before your God. You claim, oh, we love God and we're righteous before God, and yet God knows in your heart is filled with wickedness and idolatry. You say, we're God's people. He will deliver us. And what you might find is that you, though you've lived among the people of God, are not His people. You have never had His Spirit. And the eternal curse may be falling. Israel faced the judgment of God. And the last part of chapter 10 continues with a plea for repentance. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground. For it is the time to seek the Lord that He may come and rain righteousness upon you. Hosea says, please, please return to God. But the last words of this chapter say they would not return. At dawn the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. They continued in unrighteousness. The message here is not hopeful. The message here ends in destruction. The vine of Israel is cut off. She's burned. She's torn down. She's born the fruit of unrighteousness, not the fruit of righteousness. And if this was the end of the story, we'd all be ready to leave here and commit suicide, right? Let's get this over with. There's no hope. But there's hope. There is hope. Remember that reference to the vine earlier that the vine of Israel was planted in the choicest valley and was supposed to bear righteousness, but instead of righteousness, they bore unrighteousness. Israel failed, right? Israel failed. God kept His promise. And so should it surprise us then to find? Remember, every Old Testament reference to Israel as a vine was followed by a negative. You were a vine which God loved and planted and tended and you bore Him unrighteousness and now He's going to burn you, tear you down and destroy you. It was all negative, wasn't it? And if that's all we had from God, we'd leave this place discouraged and distraught. There's no hope. And yet God... Like he did in Hosea 10 when he reached back into Judges and grabbed the story of Gibeah and the people of Gibeah to show the people their situation and condition. He does a similar thing later in the Bible with this concept of a vine. Because his son said in John 15, I am the true vine. Israel, physical Israel, failed God. But Jesus Christ was the true Israel who never failed. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it might bear more fruit. Remember I told you. There are those inside the covenant people of God, New Testament covenant people of God, the church, who are unfaithful and they will be taken away. In the end, they will be weeded out. He says there are those who are supposedly in the vine who will be cut off and thrown into the fire. But then there are true branches and they will be pruned and they will be able to bear much fruit. If Israel... Physical Israel was all there was, and that was the vine we were connected into. Woe be to us. There is no hope. 
But the reality is that Jesus Christ is the true vine. And in Him, all the promises of God, Paul says, are yes and amen. And so in Him, we have the vibrant living Spirit who flows to the branches and causes them to produce fruit. He is our vine. He is our hope. God took an Old Testament picture and fulfilled it in the person of Jesus Christ. And so you may be here today And as you sit here and hear these words, you say, I am the chief of all hypocrites. I have played the part outwardly of righteousness and love and obedience. And yet inwardly my heart is filled with idolatry. I want you to hear both messages. If you continue in that, you will be cut off. You will be judged. You will face an eternity without God with no hope. That's what happened to physical Israel. But the rest of the story is you don't have to stay in that condition. Because the true vine, Jesus Christ says, if you are in me, you will bear much fruit. And you won't be cut off and discarded. You will be cut and trimmed, and sanctified, so that you will bear much fruit. Grapevines are beautiful, and I love grapes. But you know, a vine dresser works a long time on a set of vines to make it bear fruit. God is faithful. And from the beginning, from Genesis, He's been trimming the tree, trimming the tree. Trimming the tree so that it would bear fruit. And it is bearing fruit. It's spread not now, not just in the people of Israel, but all over the world. It is bearing fruit. Because the fruit is being born by the Spirit which is possessed by the people. Because they are in the vine, the true vine. So, the house divided won't stand but the house and the house built on sand will fall, but that which is built on the rock, the vine, we might say is engrafted in Jesus Christ, put into him, will bear much fruit. Let's pray. Father.